Wetzel Show, and I am your host and executive producer, Lois Wetzel, coming to you live this morning from Houston, Texas at 9 a.m. Central Time. I want to remind you to register for Blog Talk Radio. It's free, and if you do, you can rate my show, mark it as a favorite, or get reminders of upcoming shows. You will also be shown in the list of people who have visited this show. If you want to call in, the call-in number is 347-945-5309. You can telephone or you can call us using Skype. I offer a free email newsletter about metaphysics, spirituality, the coming changes, and the kinds of things that we talk about here on this show. I've been sending this free newsletter out for 12 years. To sign up for that, you would go to hotpinklotus.com. And I don't share your email address with anybody because your privacy is important to me. We've got a very interesting show for you today. Uh, Stefan Wutunui, I think is how you say it. I'm going to ask him in a minute has had certain insights during the course of his travels and research, plus wisdom gleaned from indigenous elders from around the world, which became the basis for his website, Dreaming the Pyramid. The notion behind his theory is that that we, as well as our family from other stars, along with Prime Creator, co-created the universe and left proof of our divine nature and purpose within the design of Egypt's great pyramid. Um. He posits that the pyramid represents humans as immortal divine beings. So without any further ado, let's open the line to him. Hello, are you there? Lois, I'm here. This is Stefan. How are you? I had trouble getting that line to open. I'm doing well. (laughs) Well, it looks like we're connected now. Yes, we are. So pronounce your name correctly for me, because I'm not sure I did that right. Watani. Your name. Yeah, Stefan Watani. I was close. Yeah, you did a fantastic uh, first-time effort there. Thank you. Thank you. Most people I have to repeat my name four or five times. (laughs) Well, I pride myself on having a good ear, (laughs) but thank you very much for pronouncing it. And so can you kind of tell us how you managed to come to uh, uh, what your theory is and then how you, how'd you get there with it, a little more detail. Well, Lois, it began in 1991, and uh, this was prior to the Gulf War breaking out. And what happened was I was working at a grocery store in Calgary, Alberta, and I was facing, uh, I think it was Coke or Pepsi cans, and then all of a sudden I felt a cold touch on my skin when nobody was around. So I looked all around, up and down the aisles. Nobody was there that uh, that was close by. And then that was progressed. That was followed shortly after by dreams, dreams involving triangles, uh, pyramid-like shapes swirling about, uh, mathematical equations, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was also accompanied by voices, hearing voices. Usually, when I was just falling asleep or just waking up. Like I would hear a voice in those. So I think a lot of your listeners might be able to relate with that, those sort of episodes. And not knowing what to do with it all, like I'm, I'm Plains Cree from the uh, from the Saskatchewan area in Canada, and my mother is French-Canadian, so I have a dual heritage background. And in our culture, the First Nations culture, we go to our elders whenever we have questions. But in regards to this, I didn't think that any elders would really understand what I was going through, so I, I decided to go all about it alone. So I sold everything I had and took off on a massive canoe trip that totaled over 2,400 miles, mostly solo, actually. Uh, for one month, I was accompanied by a brother. And during that trip, the information started becoming clear. And what it became was a story involving the Great Pyramid and also human origins. And originally, it was called Star Nations. So at that point, I began putting it into book form, and I've been writing that book for the past 12 years, and I offer it as free download on my site. But the basic gist of Dreaming the Pyramid Lows is that the Great Pyramid was built as a spiritual and architectural blueprint for us to become. If we become the pyramid, we become our own Messiah when we save ourselves. Wow. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about those symbols within the pyramid? Sure, absolutely. I'll give you the quick uh, executive summary, and it even comes with a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) 
the, the basic gist is if you go above the pyramid, first of all, Lois, we have to, um, when the, the ideas within Dreaming the Pyramid make it so that it's not the size, the age, or even the materials of the pyramid that, that are important. It's actually the symbolism and the ratios. So first of all, let's imagine the pyramid being something much, much smaller, something that our minds eye can manage. Make the pyramid about the height of your own body, for instance. Okay? Okay. Okay, so first of all, the first step is that go right above the pyramid, about, say, maybe 20, 30 feet, and look down upon it. And what you'll see is a giant square shape, right? Right. Okay, now put one element on each side of that pyramid. So, for instance, earth, air, water, and fire. Our bodies, our human bodies, our physical bodies contain the four elements because, for one thing, we breathe it in, air. Uh, earth gives us substance. Water allows us fluidity of movement. And fire keeps our blood uh, temperature constant at uh, 37 degrees Celsius or 98.6 degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit. So, uh, that's how the Great Pyramid contains the four elements. Now, each element within astrology also contains three signs. So the earth element, for instance, contains Taurus, Virgo, and Capricorn. Fire contains uh, Leo, Aries, and Sagittarius, and so on and so on until you arrive to the other 12 signs. So humans, like our natal astrological charts, are usually a conglomeration of a bunch of astrological signs all thrown in there. So for instance, even though a person is a Libra, they can have seven or eight or nine or ten, eleven planets, and, and each one corresponding to different signs. So we are actually composed of the twelve signs of the zodiac, humanity is in general. Now, how is the thirteenth sign represented in the pyramid? Well, that's easy. You'll just look at the missing capstone at the top. It's the one point on the pyramid that unites all those twelve signs together at the top. Now, historically, the Great Pyramid has not had a physical capstone. Legend says that it was originally made of gold. Some people say it was black onyx, and some people say it was made out of quartz crystal. But I take the angle, based on the lack of historical evidence due to my research, that the Great Pyramid was never meant to be there physically, but spiritually. Now, where we see a direct correlation of that is on the back of the American dollar seal in your own country. You have a pyramid with a fiery-looking triangular capstone sitting at the top. So that's direct symbolism there. Now from then on, we get into crystals. Oh, by the way, and that 13th sign has been uh, uh, exemplified by certain people throughout history. The last person that we've seen that, that has done this has been Jesus, because he, told, he chose 12 people to travel around with, 12 disciples. And the lesson there was that, hey, you know, you don't have to be an Aquarius or a Scorpio or a Gemini or... You can be all 12 signs together because Jesus represented the 13th sign out of that 12-person entourage. So uh, when the Masons, like if you go into any old first world downtown center and go to the oldest buildings, you will, I almost guarantee you'll be able to go to some of those buildings and you'll witness the absence of a 13th floor in many of those buildings. You won't find it on the elevators. It'll go from the 12th floor to the 14th floor. You know, so the early Freemasons, they were probably also aware of this Masonic relationship between Christ and the disciples or between the number 13 and 12. So it's portrayed within the pyramid in that way. Now, crystals. We have crystals in our bodies, Lois, because our, first of all, our blood contains silica, you know, and that's one of the primary elements of crystals. But on top of that, when our bodies, uh, when, our, when we die and when our bodies decompose, they gradually form crystals, like our bodies return to the earth. So how does the Great Pyramid contain a crystal? Well, that's even easier. Just look at its shape. <laughs> it's, in half of the, it's in the shape of half an octahedron crystal, and, and crystals grow naturally in the earth. Now, what do crystals do? Lois, without crystals, you don't have technology. You don't have phones, computers, CDs. You don't even have glass, because glass is made out of crystals, sand crystals. So the lesson there is that our technology is simply an extension of our own selves. In other words, as we evolve collectively over time, we, were pro we are probably going to be able to mimic and surpass all forms of our current and future technology, especially collectively speaking. 
So we're better than our technology. We're using it as a crutch right now, but eventually we're going to let it go. So the Great Pyramid portrays crystals in that way. Now let's get into third eye. How does the Great Pyramid... Well, actually, let's get into chakras first. The chakras are these seven energy centers of the body, according to the Eastern traditions. And the Great, the great Pyramid also contains these chakras simply by implication, because if the Great Pyramid is in the shape of a crystal, then what do crystals do to light? They divide light into seven parts, the rainbow spectrum or the light spectrum. So the Great Pyramid would also symbolically contain chakras. Now, third eye, of course, within our own bodies, is a sort of a sixth sense or a gut instinct that allows you to see into other realms and dimensions, past time and space, and it gives you messages from the other side. It allows you to communi communicate with your higher power or God. And how the Great Pyramid exemplifies that is in two ways. First of all, look again on the back of the American dollar bill. You have an, an eye right there within that capstone that represents uh, spirit or that 13th sign. So the Egyptians also had and have the eye of Horus or Ra, which I think has been distorted over time. I, I think originally when the Egyptians or the people that built the Great Pyramid incorporated that symbol, they meant it as the third eye, but it came something else over time. Now, we, have, we come to two last elements, and that's the Kundalini and Androgyny. So we'll tackle Kundalini first. The Kundalini is a serpentile energy living within the body, according to Eastern traditions, and it acts as sort of like a messenger and a caretaker of the chakras along the spinal column. And the more spiritual you become, the more active and uh, alive the Kundalini becomes within us. It becomes a healthy serpent, so to speak. So there's no direct way that the Great Pyramid contains Kundalini. But let's assume for a moment that ancient knowledge found its way around the globe to different peoples. So let's go across the ocean to the Atlantic into the uh, Valley of Yucatan in, in Mexico at the Temple of Chichen Itza. And what, he, what you have there is that on every March spring equinox and the fall equinox in September, hundreds of people gather around the, that pyramid and witness what happens when the sun shone, shines down upon a certain spot on that pyramid and they see a large shadow descending and ascending that pyramid, and it resembles a snake. And the Mayans believed that uh, that personification of a, of a serpent represented their god or their deity, Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl, who was their god, said that when he would return one day, he would come back in the form of a feathered serpent. In other words, like a snake with wings. So right there, you have a snake within a pyramid representing Kudalini. Now in Egypt, you have... Uh, snakes with wings portrayed everywhere in the art. There's the goddess Wajet, for instance, which is often portrayed as a snake with wings. And she was a protector of the kings in Lower Egypt. And let's also get into chivalry here, because this uh, this symbolism has, has, has endured and, and lived into this present day. In chivalry, you have the concept of uh, the knight venturing into the cave of the mountain to rescue the maiden from the ancient dragon. Well, how is that any different from going into the pyramid to meet your soulmate and rescuing it from the, you know, the kundalini. So in other words, don't kill the beast within. Tame it and become its friend. And there's even a movie about that nowadays. And you know, tame how to tame your dragon. You know, so it's it's old unconscious symbolism that's arising out in today's uh, movies. Now, oh, and also Lord of the Rings. Look at Lord of the Rings. Who's the enemy in Lord of the Rings? Sauron. And Sauron, the Latin prefix Saur, is reptilian in connotation. That's why we say dinosaur, S-A-U-R. And so Sauron has a reptilian connotation to it, and, and uh, he lives as a, as a spirit or an entity in a tower with a huge eye on top. You know, so symbol symbolic of the pyramid again. So tame that beast. Now, the, kundalini, the uh, androgynous aspect is the last uh, point that we're going to get to here, and it's possibly the most controversial of all. Lois, if... If, if we had the, the ability to co-create a world and, we, and all the stops were pulled and uh, we, we could do it, why would we purposely create two genders when only one would suffice, especially if that one gender was able to shift back and forth between genders according to will and desire? And why I say that is because even in Genesis, it's, it explicitly states within the first chapter that we were created both male and female at the same time. And it isn't until the second chapter that the separation of genders takes effect. Plato, in his Symposium Dialogue, also spoke of this. And also, if you just take a piece of board, 
or a piece of paper and rip it or break the board, you're going to wind up with two parts that fit each other in in one way. You know, like you, they'll have little convex and convex, uh, concave sections that they they fit together. So when you look at the the human anatomy of male and female genders, obviously you have one that's convex and one that's concave. And the implication is there that, you know, they're probably meant to go together. And if they're meant to go together, maybe at one point they were together. So maybe at one point we were spiritually, if not physically, androgynous. And at one point we split up into genders. Now, how does the Great Pyramid represent that? Two ways. Dan Brown presented one way in The Da Vinci Code in 2006 in his movie when... um, when he portrayed a top triangle and a bottom triangle, the top triangle representing the phallus and the bottom triangle inverted representing the womb. When you blend the two together, you get a pyramid or a six-pointed star, top and bottom. Now, there's another way that the pyramid represents male and female within the same structure as well, and it's really quite easy. Just look at the presence of the male or the king in the queen's chambers right inside the pyramid. So again, you have a male and female energy right there. So I think Lois said at some point, I don't know when, and I love being a guy, <laughs> but at some point we're probably going to refuse as one gender at some point, but I'm not sure how fluid or elastic or flexible that gender will be in the future. Probably, we, Maybe we had all that freedom in, in the beginning and we fell to our current state and we're gradually trying to reclimb to that state. And that's the Great Pyramid in a nutshell. And, and as you can see, None of these ideas depend on the size or the age or the location of the pyramid or even the materials or even the authorship of the pyramid. They, they just stand on their own. That's fascinating. And you, you got that information from a variety of sources, many of which were not uh, physical, in other words. Yeah, yeah I consider, uh, well, I am a contactee, but I'm not sure what I've been contacted by. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't make a clear distinction between spirit, God, and extraterrestrials or angels simply because um, I'm either not smart enough to, to differentiate it or I just don't have that inside knowledge, you know, because uh, um, when I started having my experiences, I fought against them at first and I was wondering why they were coming to me. For instance, because I don't even have an interest in the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And actually, since all these ideas have come about and I've started talking about it, my interest for the Great Pyramid has even lessened because I'm more fascinated by us and our potential than I am by the Great Pyramid. Because if the Great Pyramid represents us, then we're the seventh wonder of the ancient world, not the pyramid. The pyramid is just a giant workbook or a mirror. So, you know, if a trip to Egypt came about one day, I might take it, or I might, I'm not sure what I would do, but uh, I just don't feel the answers are there anymore. I think the answers are within. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but I think it actually does really apply. So I agree with you completely about um, getting information from uh, beings that are not in the same physical format that we are, that it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter who they are or what the distinctions between the levels are. And I think it's uh, people confuse themselves and waste a lot of time trying to chart territory they can't even understand. Yeah. So I don't I don't um, think it's necessary to, to figure out whether somebody's a god or an extraterrestrial or an angel or whatever. That's uh, right. And also, I also think that the fear factor is one to get over as well. We have so many oh, yeah. phobias and fears yeah. as humans that, you know, if something from the other side wants to teach us, it has a barrier to push through before we can accept it. I have spoken to several people who have said, yes, a you know, 20-foot-tall light being came into my living room and wanted to talk to me 20 years ago or 15 years ago, and I was terrified and told them to go away, and they did. Even people have said that to beings they were sure were angels. Go away because they were afraid, which I think is really sad. And sometimes they'll come back later, and sometimes they don't. Oh, um, God. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hope, so, I hope that humanity raises itself to the point where we can actually converse and commune, you know, because yeah. uh, we're missing out on a lot by having that fear within us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of a cultural thing. I think there are a whole lot of people who are afraid because they've been kind of brainwashed by the culture but I see that shifting as well I see a lot more people awakening to um, possibilities that there are 
things beyond the conscious mind that we can't really analyze, take apart, figure out, but we can't embrace and accept. And, you know, I would like to go back to your comment about um, crystals in the body. Mm -hmm. My belief is, or my understanding, it hit me one day like a ton of bricks, is (laughs) that water, which makes up most of our bodies, is at certain temperatures, when when water freezes, it is a crystal. That's why ice takes up more space than the water does when it, melts because most things contract when they when they get cold but water does not it expands and that's because it makes a crystal which means that inside our bodies we have a liquid crystal matrix we are a liquid crystal that's absolutely right and i think that's really significant because when you look at the work of uh emoto in japan and the studies that he's done that show that when you play music to water and measure the crystals that the ice, the water makes when it's frozen, before and after the music, or write words on the side of the jar, the crystals change, which means that we have to pay attention to what we expose our bodies to because we have water in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And it yep. changes depending on what we're exposed to. So. I I agree that we have crystals and that we're mostly crystals. Yeah, and it also raises the touchy issue of, um, in a way, there's there's you know you can't be pure all the time, because if, if you were pure, you would have no shadow, and if you had no shadow, you wouldn't be physical. You'd be an angel or a spirit. So it takes some degree, a very minute degree of darkness within the soul to function normally here on the earth, but for the most part. If we try to become better, um, that involves making sure that uh, we don't purposely expose ourselves to negative influences, and that includes people. Yeah. Um, the, the the touchy part about that is that we're also sort of like sponges because crystals also absorb energy. So we have to try to discern what we take in from other people. That only not only involves people, but also sound, smells sites um if you go in the forest and you witness you know nature it's probably a lot more healthy thing than going on the internet and downloading pornography you know and uh um, oh yeah so yeah. so it's it's a t- it's a touchy thing you know you have to strike a balance between living here on earth and 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 climbing back up to your spiritual self i'm not i'm not pure myself anyway like i i do acknowledge that dark aspect within myself but i try to keep it under control as much as possible and I don't let it overrun me. Well, I feel like if people become conscious of the fact that they are made of water and water takes on its surroundings pretty much. I mean, it can take on certain elements of the surroundings. They'll think twice about what kind of tattoo they get or what's written on the T-shirt they're wearing. If they, oh, boy. Seriously. Yeah, that's, yeah. And what kinds of sound frequencies they expose themselves to. Like mm-hmm. um, birds twittering in the trees is one sound frequency, but um, jackhammers in the city downtown, that's a totally different frequency. Yep. And it affects mm-hmm. us. All frequencies do. So yep. I just think that the subject of water as a crystal is endlessly fascinating. Well, I'd be really curious to see what uh, Dr. Emoto thinks about the Gulf oil spill. And I know he said a prayer about it. He wrote a prayer about it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if he did any more experiments with the water in the uh, the region or anything like that. Well, you know, that's real close to where I live, and what we're hearing is that the oil is going away faster than they thought. And um, I'm, I feel like the efforts of the workers out there are a part of it, and so are the focused intentions of all the people who, like Emoto, did water blessings. And there are people all over the world doing water blessings on behalf of the Gulf and all the oceans of the world, water ceremony. Excellent. Well, I, I thought from the beginning, not, wanted, not wanting to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but if I was wanting to eliminate a large portion of the world's population, that's pretty much exactly how I would have done it, because it's more effective than uh, vaccines or anything like that. Right. Seven-eighths so eight, of the world's population eats fish, and most of the third and second world countries' populations live along the coast. 
Yeah, and that's the kind of things people were saying in the beginning that I I think a lot of people use that to whip up fear. And yep. I think what and then direct if they direct the fear if people direct fear at the Gulf of Mexico, things get worse because consciousness creates. And the more yep. people who are in fear about that, the more dangerous the situation becomes. But the more people who have positive intentions for this outcome and say say prayers and do water blessings and refuse to get into fear, the better the outcome will be. And I think it was a training exercise, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing's for sure, the whole incident... Oh, yeah, guaranteed, because the the whole incident has jump-started the spiritual growth and journey of so many thousands or even millions of people throughout the world. Yep. Like people that are not, that have been on the fence in regards to uh, crystals and healing and consciousness, well, this has kick-started their growth, and they're probably undergoing a an exponentially growing uh, spiritual rev- uh, uh, journey right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was a training exercise, and I also think that it was, um, in a way, a test, which it looks to me like we're passing because there are a lot more people focusing on a positive outcome. And what happened? Well, one of the things that happened is that there is a microbe that used to live down in cold water that's adapted itself to warm water that humans previously didn't know about this specific microbe. We know that there are microbes that eat oil. They use them to clean out oil drums out out in the Gulf and I'm sure all over the world. But Mm -hmm. um, this particular microbe managed to adapt itself because of the massive food supply because it eats oil so it adapted from cold water to move up into the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico and that's part of what's helping the oil clean up I'm not saying it's gone yet, it certainly isn't but more of it is gone than they expected to be gone because of these oil devouring microbes that this particular strain that's really prolific out there right now um, we didn't even know about previous to this Well you know Lois, I'm a I, I lived in Alberta, Canada, for 22 years, and now Alberta is probably Texas's northern counterpart when it comes to oil. I know. I love it up there. Yeah, Those it's beautiful. Those people are cowboys. I love that place. <laughs> yeah. Well, northern Alberta is going through some severe issues with the tar sands. Uh, I've I've been there, and it looks like on the it looks like the moon when you're there. Uh, you walk around at night, and it looks like you're square on the moon with all the craters and everything. And uh, people are getting cancers like crazy. So the bottom line in regards to the spill and everything else like that is that eventually, of course, we're going to have to get off of oil. Well, that's been one of the positive outcomes of this is that we've, in the States anyway, the United States government is, especially Obama, is uh, emphasizing how very important it is now to further develop wind farms and get off of oil and mm-hmm. get and to end our addiction to oil is how they put it, and it is an addiction. Well, I thought maybe one way people could uh, create their own wind farms is just eat more beans. Oh, well, that's one way. <laughs> just kidding but, there, but what I'd, what I'd like to uh, mention also briefly there, Lois, is that um, I have a free ebook on my site that people can download for free, uh-huh. and I encourage it because there's 414 pages there, and I worked on the book for uh, 12 years. And uh, it's a free download, so even people that belong to forums, they can point a link, to, a link to that. It won't break the forum's rules, because I know a lot of forum's rules state that you can't link to a site that has something for for, uh, for sale. So it's a free download. And also that, uh, you know, if, if the pyramid portrays us as divine, omniscient beings, what it's essentially saying is that eventually we're going to become or re-become godlike beings mm-hmm. or with godlike abilities. And Lois, one of the most, uh, I want to say terrifying, but it's not terrifying, one of the most grand insights that I've had regards to the pyramid in these last 20 years is that if the pyramid represents us as gods, well, let me, let me put it this way. If, if we exist forever after we die, then it's probably also because we existed forever before we were born. I mean, that's just the logic of it. And if that's the case, then when the universe and everything was being created, including the Earth, I think we might have actually helped out with the process. I mean, if you're going along with the ride and the cosmos is doing something, there's no reason why you can't hold on to the reins at the same time and control some of that direction, especially collectively speaking. 
And I think that our family throughout the universe, or other uh, what I what we call star people in my culture, but what other people call extraterrestrials. I think we're all co-creators in this grand realm called the universe and that we're slowly coming back to our spiritual selves and we're probably going to rejoin up at some point. And, um, you know, this abilities, these abilities as co-creators are returning, you know, because we're, we're the only species on this planet out of the 26 million that's able to genetically modify the genes of other species around us. We, and, and look at the, even the world that we co-create within video games. You know, like, I mean, uh, some of these video games, Lois, are becoming so realistic that people are dying. Like, in, in South Korea, some people are actually dying because they're addicted to video games. Yeah. And uh, some people are losing their spouses, their jobs, their families, because they're, they're, they're losing themselves within an artificial reality that was co-created by us, a video game. But let's put that concept back in time. To the beginning, all of the ancient texts within the world state that humans were, were most, of the, most of the ancient texts point out to the idea that humans lived in a sort of utopia where there was no death, there was no disease, we had all of these fantastic abilities and that at one point we fell. So what if that same process happened back then? What if we helped co-create the earth? And I say co-create because we don't really create anything. What we do is that we expand and modify upon the smallest elements that already exist. You know, so of course I'm talking about photons and neutrinos and molecules and atoms here. But over time, we co-created this world and then gradually as we became sucked into it, we became so enamored, so in love with the physical sensations within the earth that we forgot our true selves and we fell and now we're struggling to, to regain that. So I don't think we're really evolving. I think we're re-evolving. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And there are many um, ancient cultures, that older cultures than mine anyway, that agree with that too. I'm going to open the line to my co-host and see if she's got a question. Hey, hey sure, yeah. Hi, how you doing? Got any questions? Um, well, I guess I'm stuck and fascinated on the fact that um, he brought in all of this information about um, the pyramids and how the pyramid, pyramids relate to us and, uh, you know, the metaphor and the connection between us, and yet he has this resistance. I guess I could call you by name, Stephen, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. um, and has this resistance to Egypt or even not even sure that you want to go there. I just find well, that um, juxtaposition really curious. Well, to me it's not a resistance. Uh, I love traveling. And actually, okay. I, I traveled around with for 12 years just with stuff that I owned in a backpack, so I love traveling. Hmm. Um, but it's not one of the PowerPoints I'd love to go see. For me, it, I'd love to see go see the crop circles in England, actually. That's one of the places I really want to go. And, of hmm. course, I probably wouldn't refuse a trip to Egypt, but it's not a resistance. More, It's, a, it's more of an indifference. Um, socially speaking, I tend to be a person that kind of does not get along well with authority. So I don't hmm. like... Uh, okay. I don't Me like. Either. Yeah, <laughs> like for instance, uh, when when I go to Egypt, well, not when I go to Egypt, but if I, when I see the fifty to sixty to seventy foot tall statues dedicated to the gods that the Egyptians built in the later dynasties, to me that says either idol worship or oh my God, you are so much better than me, I cannot be as great as you. Um, it says I am your your servant. It, to me, it, that's the connotation. It might be different in the actuality. That might not have been why they say that, but on the surface, that's what it says to my mind. And I think that the and and let's also consider the idea, the, the not the idea, the actual absolute fact that there are 119 pyramids in Egypt that are officially recognized by the Egyptian government. And out of those 119 pyramids, the Great Pyramid of Egypt on the Giza Plateau surrounded by all the other satellite pyramids. The Great Pyramid is the only one that is as well built as it is. It's the tallest, and it's the uh, it's one of the oldest, if not the very oldest, according to who you ask. So what that says is that now let's put that in let's put that into the picture of a construction crew building a series of houses. If if you hired a construction crew to build you a house, you wouldn't expect the foreman to come up to you and say, well, okay, look, we're going to build you a house. This is about the uh, 
200th house that we built, and it won't be as well built as the first one that we built, but, you know, and actually we've been getting kind of shoddier and shoddier in our construction techniques, and now we're building houses that are not as best as the first ones we built. You know, you probably wouldn't hire that construction crew. You would want to hire a construction crew that got better over time, not worse. Mm-hmm. But the exact opposite is in Egypt. The best pyramid of all is the oldest one, and it's the greatest one that, that we call the Great Pyramid. All the other ones are falling apart. So it looks to me that as though the, the culture that, 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 that found themselves in that land when that pyramid was being built or when they found it was trying to emulate that structure over time. They did it 118 times over and they failed at duplicating the magnificence of that structure 118 times over. Hmm. And let's also consider the fact that, and this, is, this, is also, uh, this was actually voiced by Ken Klein, who is another great pyramid researcher, and... Um, he said that when in, during his travels to Egypt, he never once saw in his many travels there not one instance where a pyramid was portrayed on any traditional papyrus, drawing, or carving anywhere in the entire land of Egypt. Not in a drawing, not in a sculpture, nothing. Huh. And what that suggested to me and the people that were listening to that is that the pyramid, rather than not, you know by its absence, was probably too sacred to be on portrayed because it held such meaning to the people so i think that uh, the original teachings got distorted over time so i guess i would go to egypt but like i said you know uh the the, the teachings are within us already yeah now let's let's also consider something else and that just to make a just to put a, a, a cherry on the cake and all this have you ever, either of you ever seen the movie willow yes all right with, with Val that... kilmer and ron howard movie yeah yeah. <laughs> it was a good movie. <laughs> oh, it was excellent. I loved it. Anyways, there, there's a part in that movie where the, the wizard at the beginning says that he's going to take in five candidates. As uh, well, he's he's going to take in one apprentice, and five candidates are allowed to uh, you know vie for the position. So the candidates line up, and he says to them, "You have to pick the finger with the most power." So he puts his hand out in front of him, he extends his fingers, and each one of them has to pick a finger. And they all pick a finger, and then at the end, the wizard says, well, sorry, it looks like I'm not taking any apprentices this year because nobody picked the right finger. So then later on in the movie, what does Willow do? He says to the wizard, you know, I, I didn't really want, I didn't really answer the way I wanted to because what I want, the way I wanted to answer it was I wanted to point to my own finger because my finger was pointing towards yours. And the wizard said, well, you're right, Willow, that's the finger you should have chosen because you had the power, not me. In other words, don't rely upon something outside yourself. The answers are within. I know that's a very Eastern approach to things, but um, it illustrates the idea that if the pyramid was built as a symbol for us, well, the greater magnificence and the greater wonder is us, not the pyramid. The pyramid is made out of stone. It's going to disappear one day. Like It's not going to be there forever. Right. But our spirit, our spirit, our soul, then, and the love within us, that's going to endure for forever. So we'll always have that. Another thing about yeah, it's a great analogy. Another thing about trips is I think each of us gets guided where we're supposed to be next. Mm -hmm. So beyond our own ability to have um, a reason for going where we're going, I think that the the best reason resides in the gut, you know, the higher self or whatever, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, you know, and, and if it takes you to Egypt, maybe there'll be something with Egypt that really resonates with you, and you'll say you'll have an aha moment, you know. Yeah, and you might go to see crop circles in England and find yourself in Egypt the next day because somebody offers you a camel ride over there. And it's interesting, you know, because in in I would say probably at least twenty five percent of the time, triangles and pyramids are featured within the crop circles. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, it's all geometry. So oh, it's just amazing. Pi is 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 found throughout the uh, crop circle phenomenon, just by the the fact that there's circles alone. Um, crops, uh, pyramids. There's even uh, portrayals of eyes that have been found within crop circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, serpent-like energies or kundalini energies, you know. So these are, I, I think, they're ancient ancient uh, symbols and archetypes that just endure throughout our consciousness and throughout time. 
Well, I also think that the sacred geometry that appears in those crop circles does something to the ley lines of the earth. I think it's feeding energy into the uh, energetic grid. Whoever's put, whoever or whatever is putting them there is feeding specific energies through sacred geometry into the energetic grid of the earth for a purpose that we don't really know. I agree. But that has to do with, uh, I believe, increasing the frequency of the planet so that we all move into the next level. Yeah. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention something else about that. When uh, when I mentioned that it's part of the challenge of astrology is to transcend it and to become that 13th sign so that you become all the 12 signs at once, mm-hmm. what I'm actually saying there is that because astrology is portrayed by the signs and the signs are portrayed by the planets, is that we have to re-become the entire, or re-assimilate the entire solar system within us. You know, right now we're grounded here on Earth. Our kind is not even allowed outside the solar system. Now, whether that's because of our own doing, or whether that's a forced quarantine by other races, I'm not sure. But I think that until we spiritually transcend the limitations of this solar system, and we re-assimilate that entire solar system within us, I don't think we'll be allowed out there. So part of that becoming that 13th sign. And, you know, and, and Jesus, you know, according to um, theologians, uh, after his resurrection, he was like Neo from the Matrix. <laughs> he was able to just zip, 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 zip everywhere he wanted to instantly. And there's even legends throughout the Arctic in Canada. And, and I heard this personally up in uh, Old Crow in the Yukon Nation which is approximately 500 miles away from any roads. And I heard them, the elders there, talk about a time long ago when a bearded, pale-skinned man came among them instantly and started telling them spiritual teachings. And he, and he left and he said that he loved them and he said he would come back one day. Yeah, I think, I know some people are going to really squawk at me when I say this, but I, I think Jesus died to exhibit or to show us um, ascension. I think that was the whole point, and that the teaching got kind of skewed. It wasn't to save us from our sins; it was to teach us, by example, what it looks like when somebody has sins, because his light body is what he came back in. Well, Lois, light body. A teacher is useless unless their students surpass them eventually. Like if I was teaching something, I wouldn't want my students to remain inferior to me. I would want them to become better than me if I was a teacher. And I think that a teacher, that's what a teacher does. You have to teach your students to perfect the art or to perfect or refine the understanding or, you know, it's like jump, it's, it's like it's like you're traveling in snow in a, in a single file and the person at the front is, is getting tired. Well, hey, you know, change followers, change leaders, change leaders all the time until you find out that everybody's the leader and you're you're able to travel and and get somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, we have about mm, 17 minutes left. What else would you like to talk about? Well, uh, boy, I I don't know. Like uh, we we <laughs> we touched on so many topics in so many areas that uh, I think we pr- pretty much touched on all of them. But I would like to say that. Um, the the fear and the uncertainty regarding extraterrestrials and the upcoming disclosure that will surely happen, or contact, or possibly both at the same time, is such that uh, we're going to be forced to reevaluate our standing and our place within the universe in relation to these other races. And all over the world, you have all these ancient peoples that have these stories and legends of being visited by other beings that took on physical form and lived amongst them. And I think that our evolution, and possibly even our creation, has uh, has been has been engineered in part by these races and also by us in our spiritual states. So when we're talking about extraterrestrials, what I'm actually referring to is family, but much much more so than that, Lois, because you know the the blood the, the gene pool of the human race cannot stagnate. It has to evolve and it has to have new ideas, new blood within it. So at some point we're going to need new influence and new blood. And the only way to get that is you have to mix with other 
with others of your own kind. And if it says that we were created in God's own image, and God's being plural, you know, Elohim, meaning either angels or extraterrestrials or other dimensional beings, at some point or another, we're going to have to mix with them. So what, I'm, what that implies is that on some level, we either have or have had or will have lovers out there in space or within other dimensions. Now, if that doesn't open a can of worms, you know, in this whole paradigm, I don't know what will. But the the concept of romantic, uh, intimate relationships, I think, and, and the movie Avatar, of course, explored that. When Jake Sully, the, the man, was observing these these uh, blue beings upon another planet in Avatar, he didn't really feel anything much for them because, you know, he wasn't one of them and he wasn't living within their bodies or anything like that. But um, perhaps some of the beings that, uh, that are reportedly walking around here on Earth within human bodies, perhaps they're also operating remotely controlled bodies, or perhaps they're walk-ins, or perhaps they're incarnated souls from other solar systems or planets. So you have that mixing that's, that's probably already taking place within the Earth here now, but I think at some point it's going to be more overt. Mm-hmm. And, well, there are uh, a lot you know, of people that believe they're right here walking among us now, and they they either have bodies that look similar to ours, or they are wearing some sort of um, disguise, energetic disguise, so that they look like people. But I I totally buy into that that there are beings walking among us that are from other star systems, and that we may or may not recognize them when we see them. I'm going to ask Becky if she's got any more input or questions. Becky? Um, hi. Um, I really liked the um, discussion about the um, consciousness because I know uh, my own belief in our evolution, we're going from the carbon to the crystalline um, structure in our, I guess, in our operating system. I don't know if that's a good way to put it or not. So when you were talking about the consciousness and the crystalline, um, that really caught my attention. And could you expand on that a little bit more? Well, carbon is an imperfect uh, medium. It's organic. Okay. And uh, it can be infiltrated by so many impurities, uh, whether it's you know sound or uh, the elements injected directly into the bloodstream and, or anything like that. And crystals communicate with one another, you know, whether it's through computers and networks or through um, the ether. Mm-hmm. So crystals are alive. They're living beings in their own right. And um, at some point, and what this also involves is also is diet. I think the more uh, the more predatorial or the more carnivorous uh, we become the less and less crystalline will be. I'm not sure why I think that. But if you look at plants, for instance, most species of plants, there there are a few exceptions, like the Venus flytrap and pitcher plants, for instance, but most plants nourish themselves from the sun. And the sun gives them food and sustenance. So they actually make their own food through uh, photosynthesis. And... um, at some point, when we talk about feeding off the energies of mana or prana, I think we'll actually re-engage, re-initialize the formation of that crystalline nature within us. I think that at some point, before we became what we are now, we didn't have to descend and kill animals for food. That, that became something that, that happened to us over time, probably due to our fall or to our fall from consciousness. Do you, and the more, or do you oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just think that uh, we're going to come full circle and become crystalline beings like that again. And what will happen with that is as we become more crystalline, we're going to take on more and more of the properties of crystals. And if crystals found within computer technology, for instance, and the Internet are able... You know, if, if a person thought like the Internet within their own minds and had access to free information all the time, consciously, mm-hmm. my God, this planet would be transformed overnight into either a nightmare or a paradise. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I was I was um curious when you were talking about um the the carbon and the crystalline um and eating meat. 
because it seems to me that if we were spirits at one time, you know, when we first came in in light bodies without human form, if that was a form um, of grounding, of becoming more connected to nature perhaps, which could also correspond to with what you said about um, the fall from grace and and that. But um, Well, it, it's tough for me to say that because I'm a hunter. Like, ah. and, and, and I've actually killed animals at close range with my own hands when they were wounded. And um, I'll, I'll reveal right now that I cried like a baby after because it's such a visceral, organic experience that I don't really want to relive it. Mm-hmm. And um, But I have to acknowledge that at some point in our evolution, we're probably going to re-become like those beings. And even, let's let's get also into uh, the, concept, the concept of cattle mutilation. Why is it only happening to cows? <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't hear about sheep getting mutilated or, or horses or pigs or donkeys or... Goats. Or, no goats. No goats. You know, it's, it's cows. <laughs> but like, are, are the are the other beings having barbecues up there that we don't know about? Do we have to send them craft <laughs> sauce or something? Like, what is it? You know? And um, you know, so I'm wondering, even on that level, are they ingesting protein or 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 are they having? Because I can't see them using cow parts for hybrid human beings or whatever, because that, that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. <laughs> so it, it tells me either, either that they're feeding off of it or they're using the, you know, the DNA somehow, but uh, I don't know. Huh. I, I think George right. Foreman has a private contract with them. <laughs> <laughs> that is an enduring mystery. And I, you know, <laughs> a whole lot of people think it is for um, genetic experimentation, but nobody seems to have any idea why we would need genetic experimentation on cows. And Yeah, and why only cows? Why only these domesticated things that we eat? I mean, it could have been chickens, but... And, and why not bulls? There's no bulls that have, been, that have been mutilated. It's only cows, like female cows. Female cows, really? I never heard of a bull, like a male cow. I never heard of a bull being mutilated. And I've looked for that. I, I can't find one instance anywhere, anywhere. Never occurred to me that it was just the one. That's <laughs> very odd. Well, basically, yeah. that's that's the message of dreaming the pyramid in a nutshell. The pyramid is us, and it, it, it's not only us. I think the pyramid was built for a multi-purpose reason, but I think one of those primary reasons was to represent us in a and a blueprint for our evolution. And. Um, I'm not fearful of the whole 2012 scenario because I think we have a lot to look forward to. And, uh, oh, me too. Yeah, you know, and, and we're all related in this. And also, please, please, if you're listening to this, go download that free ebook. It's on the left-hand corner of my site. It's 414 pages long. It's got over 30 illustrations. And the best thing you can do is download it. It's one click. Nothing will cost you. And just take it to a printer and ask them to print it double-sided and spiral-bound and share it. I don't have a publisher, and I don't have enough money to get it printed myself, so just just download it and print it yourself, and it won't cost any more than what you would pay for a hardcover book from a bookstore. Awesome. Thank yeah. you for being here with us. I really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you, Lois. Talk- I had a great time with you as well. Thank you. Thank you. And you too, Becky. Okay. Uh, there's Becky. I hope oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. I think... Um, I got knocked off somehow. I don't know how, yeah. but anyway, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, and if you ladies ever want to have me back and talk about other stuff, just, just say the word. All righty then. I believe we'll do that. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Have a good night.
Oh, 